0: Life can be tricky, making us ask, what was that? Join host Jan Murray and her guests
1: as they explore the that's of life. Welcome to life after that.
2: everyone and welcome to another episode of Life After That. This is Jan Murray, your host. Today we're welcoming Carrie McDonald and her son Wyatt from the state of Idaho. Carrie lost her mother Bobette, 81 years old, back in March of 2022. So welcome Carrie and Wyatt. Thank you. Okay, so obviously this season of Life After That is all about amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as ALS, motor neuron disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, the ice bucket challenge disease, so many different names that it's known by. And we are sharing stories of many families across the country and as well as other countries such as Canada and hopefully soon Australia. And Carrie, what can you tell us about your mom and her life before ALS. I mean, what was her life like before she got diagnosed? Can you lead us into that?
0: Yes. Um, My mother was just an incredible person. She was multi-talented. She was a musician. She was an artist. She was a dancer. She was a teacher. Uh, She was the most wonderful mother anybody could ever hope for. And i i am very grateful that, um, I'm her daughter. Uh, I just have one sibling. He, um, he's 18 months older than I am. I'm 55. And, uh, we had one younger sibling that, um, passed away when he was an uh, infant. Um, he would have been a couple years younger than me. So there were just the three of us, um, or, uh, three children, but I grew up with just one brother and then my mom and my dad. Um, Let's see. What else can I say? My mom was a church organist. Um, She started out as a small child playing the piano. Um, She lived in Scottsbluff, Nebraska, and her piano teacher, I think, moved away. Uh, And so the only one left in town to teach at her level was an organist, and she Started taking organ, I believe, at the age of twelve, and then by fourteen she was accompanying in her church with the organ, and she accompanied for our church for sixty years. Wow, accomplishment! Um, In addition, in high school she played the clarinet and the oboe. Um, She grew up in the fifties and was very proud of her time growing up in the fifties. She just told us stories about dragging Maine and going to the sock cops and the drive-ins and, uh, working at the soda fountain as a soda jerk. Um, and she just lived a wonderful childhood. Uh, she is one of seven children. She's the second oldest of seven children, six girls and one boy. Um, And she was very, very proud of her family. She loved her siblings very much and a close-knit family. Um, She, uh, I think it was a little transition for her to come from such a large family to only having um, two, raising two children. She always wanted more children, um, was not able to have more after she lost my brother um let me think if there's other things she spent her career teaching she taught two years before my brother and I were born and then she took off the time to raise us and then she went back to teaching um, after we were grown and she taught for the next um, all, all together I think she taught 27 28 years second and third grade she was a wonderful teacher she was the one that you know all the kids loved and a math specialist she specialized in math taught a lot of math classes in the mornings
2: oh wow the world needs more math specialists yeah
0: Yeah. so I guess from there we'll just let you ask me questions
2: (laughs) okay well I mean it sounds like she was just a wonderful person and had a really wonderful life uh one of the things I always like to ask is what was her health like did she have health issues before ALS or any anything that would have uh you know, signal something else was wrong? Or was she like my husband, super healthy, rarely went to the doctor and then boom, ALS hit? What was her situation?
0: Um, You know, she wasn't, she was kind of a sickly child. Um, later in life, she just was always very thin and um, a little more on the fragile side, but not terribly. She was a cheerleader and very active and and young, but we later found out in her life um, when she was in her fifties, she was diagnosed with a heart condition and it was something with her septum, which she later ended up having an open heart surgery Um, and yeah, had some valve issues. So, but it was little things like she, she would pass out easily or she would, um, like when I was a child, she couldn't blow up balloons because that would make her very lightheaded. I remember that. And we always had to have my dad blow up balloons, but, um, but for the most part, she was, she was quite healthy. She, she always had high blood pressure, um, that she managed very well. She always thought that she would die of a stroke (laughs) or something related to her heart or, or her blood pressure. She's
1: certainly
2: skin. not ALS for sure.
1: Well, well um,
0: why? What- skin cancer, oh. too. white's going to jump in.
1: She had skin cancer too, but I don't know has- if that.
0: Well, I. I think it
1: was induced by something that
0: I will. Yeah. There, when she was a child, she was very fair skinned and she had bad acne as a 16 year old. And they, back in the 50s, they gave radiation treatments for acne. Yeah. And later in her life, she developed skin cancer, which the dermatologist told us was probably attributed to the radiation. So we did, uh, when she was diagnosed with ALS, we did wonder if the radiation she received to her head and face may have had something to do with it.
2: Yeah, there's so many mysteries there with ALS and... You know, there's just uh, I could find lots of people with similarities and then I'll find someone who really had no similarity. I have found that the people that I've known, uh, women specifically, um, tended to be thin and smaller women, uh, not carrying a lot of uh, muscle, meat or even fat. Um, And it's been said for years that those who hold their weight or carry more weight tend to last longer as well. Um, my late husband lost two brothers before he died to ALS. Wow. So obviously it's familial, but they've yet to identify the gene mutation that's within this family, uh, in October, he lost a sister as well. So there were six kids in uh, the Murray family and uh, the baby brother was diagnosed, I believe in his late twenties uh then the older brother was diagnosed a year or so after he was diagnosed and then several years after that my husband was diagnosed and uh then six months after my husband died the sister was diagnosed so all that's left now is my husband's twin brother fraternal twin and one sister out of six kids ALS has wiped everybody else out wow my kids are happy they're adopted they'll tell you that very openly we're glad we're adopted um because it's scary, you know, because nobody knows where it's coming from and what it's doing. But the I, I'm it-
0: just speechless at yeah. that because one was enough. Yeah. Our other, our, our only other exposure was my mom had a friend 20 years ago that had it, but we'd moved away and she just had heard that that's what she, but we really didn't know a lot about ALS. Other so than- it was
2: sporadic in your family. Yes. Um, yeah, no it- one else. Was your mother, was it a limb onset ALS or was it bulbar with the breathing and speaking?
0: We, she was limb onset and okay. um, I remember when she got diagnosed, the, that was one of the things the neurologist tried to say to make us feel better.
2: <laughs> well, tell uh, me about leading up to that. What okay. led to her seeking help to begin with that led to that diagnosis?
0: She does believe she did believe that maybe she started showing the first symptoms clear back in 2014, 2015 um, when she moved to my house, she had stairs in her house before, and it was getting very difficult for her to go up and down the stairs, but, you know, she attributed to being older and her heart. Um, She was about 74, 72, 74 about that time. Um, And so she wanted a single level home. Um, then I started to notice what, after she moved here, I spent a lot of time with her and I started to notice she was wobbly. And, uh, in fact, I think in 2017, I had texted my brother and I said, mom's starting to wobble and she would catch herself. She mm-hmm. would catch herself. And then, uh, I think she took her first fall in 2018, um, And then she, she, I think she started to fall a lot and she did not tell me we did not live together at that time. Although I saw her at least three, four times a week, um, she was falling on uneven ground. She was a big gardener. She loved to work in her yard and she was falling in the yard and got to the point where she couldn't, she struggled to get up. Um, and then by by 2019, December of 2019, she took a really bad fall. She was right in front of me stepping into her house and she just went straight down. And like you mentioned about earlier, when we talked about your mom, um, my mom also broke her face and cut her face up pretty bad. Not, she didn't need stitches or anything, but bruised it and a little cut. And uh, what we didn't realize because of her her face was that she'd actually broke her foot also. And we didn't realize till about a week later that she couldn't walk very well on it. And by then it was, you know, probably too late to get her in to do anything about it. So it was just a little bone in her foot. Um, But then she fell again in February of the beginning of 2020 and broke her pelvis. Mm. Yeah. So that Mm. was, that was a serious break, and um, she had to lie there for about an hour because she couldn't get a hold of me, and she crawled her way back into the house and finally got a hold of me, um, so that kind of started it, but if you remember, by February 2020, you know we had made an appointment to get in to see the doctor. It took a while, and then the pandemic hit, right. and- And then we also live in a very part, you know, a lot of people have heard everyone's moving to Idaho (laughs) Uh, and it just, it's very hard to get into a doctor without quickly, without it taking some time. And um, we just didn't have enough neurologists in town. And so it took us a while. um, And I I finally just started calling and begging. We were going to have to leave town to find a neurologist. And I just started begging staff members, please, she's elderly. I don't want to have to drive her. And we finally, by October, got into a neurologist in town. And then shortly after that, we had the EMG. Um, that's an interesting little story. The day we went in, cause uh, our neurologist sent us to a different neurologist to do the EMG. So we'd never met him. Um, the nurse that day was a little curt. She just it was in the afternoon. She was tired. She just wasn't the friendliest person, which is interesting. But we had the test and um, which is painful. Um, yes, it is. And I'll add to that, all while this was going on, my mother got shingles. Oh, so she was yeah. already in severe pain from shingles, and she was strong. She she handled pain very well. But so she was suffering from shingles and had to go into that test. And um, we thought we were just there to have the test. You know, they shut off the lights, do the test. They left the room. All of a sudden, the doctor came back in, sat down on the stool and said, you have ALS. Wow. And we were like, what? That wasn't even in your. Well, universe, My mom had my mom had questioned because of her friend we thought maybe she had Parkinson's that's mm-hmm. kind of the route we were going down. And she just had said one time, you know, my friend Harriet passed away of ALS. I wonder if this could be ALS, but that was like a month before. Mm-hmm. So afterwards we talked about how we feel that that was maybe a, a God thing, just preparing, softening the blow. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the hard thing about that day was, we thought we were just there for a test and then our doctor would get the results. And then our doctor would come in, like the timing it was, it was like getting hit on the head with a two by four. Uh -uh. And I just remember she said, okay. And then the doctor said, I'm very sorry. This is terminal. And then he said, but I will tell you that you have limb onset which is probably the better of the two. Um, I don't know if I believe that's true or not, but he said, you probably have three to four years to live. And then she passed away probably 15 months after that.
2: I would say that limo set is generally the lesser of the two. Bulbar own set is so difficult and takes the breathing and speaking away really quick. And most don't make it past two years, if even that long. Most of the women that I've known that had bulbar onset barely made it a year. Yeah. Um, I think in your mom's case, she was small in stature Mm -hmm. and she had multiple falls, which falls are just the enemy. I mean, just the enemy. Um, You can't really recover from those falls once you have ALS. Your muscles can't recover. Your ligaments don't recover. Your neurons die. I think it just pushes things forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a fall for my husband after diagnosis that um, actually put him in the hospital with a, a crushed shoulder ball and they gave him incorrect pain medicine that he had said he was allergic to. He had a bad reaction. He wound up almost dying over the course of a couple of weeks because of that medication error. And um, by the time the two weeks were over, ALS had stolen his ability to walk. He Mm -hmm. never recovered from the fall. He didn't hurt his legs or anything, but his legs just wouldn't work anymore. So falls to me are super bad. And your mom had multiple there and she had shingles. Her whole body was just under attack, wasn't it? It was. That had to be so hard. And, and, you know, she
0: was of that generation that was a little on the prideful side that she just was determined. She was going to keep walking. She was, and I will never forget when she took her last step, she was with the physical therapist at our home and she had a standing walker Mm -hmm. and she kind of got out of her chair and. Literally walked around the corner. We have, you know, where you can kind of walk a loop around your living room and your front room. And she just said, I can't,
2: I can't, I can't do it anymore. And it was, that was a sad day. Yeah, I'm sure it that was. Now, was, yeah, was she still living on her own at that point or were, was no, she in your home? She
0: never went back home. Um, she never went back home after her diagnosis. From that moment on, she, I said, you're staying at my house. And, and it's interesting. It's funny. I found her journal today and I was reading some things I'd forgotten. So she had gotten water in her crawl space and the whole neighborhood did that summer. um, And we had it all fixed and sump pumps put in and, and, around the time she got diagnosed, she just would not, I begged her for that whole year, mom, just move in with me. I have the room, just move in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd rather you move in now before you have to move in. Cause then we can take our time. And, and that was before we knew she was diagnosed. We just knew she wasn't doing well after her fall. Mm-hmm. And, um, that for some reason that time, right after she got diagnosed, her her crawlspace space filled with water again. So we had to have it all remediated and her house was tore up. And I really think had that not happened, I wouldn't, she would have gone back home again. And I would have just struggled getting her to my house. And she had written in her journal that I read today that that she felt like it was God's way of saying, you can't come back here.
2: (laughs) That's what I was just thinking. That was, you know, it sounded like a terrible thing, but maybe it was God's way of keeping her safer by being at your house.
0: Yeah. Well, and honestly, it's interesting that you say that because the relief once she moved in, just
2: Mm -hmm. knowing
0: that she wouldn't fall. Um, And we, we are faithful people and without going into a great bit of detail, God's hand was in so much of her diagnosis and the living situation. And I'll just give you one brief little part of it. I was trying to move out of our house cause I'm an empty nester. We have a home that's a little bit larger than we need. And I had to sell a different home that I had in order to be able to move all the pieces. I was gonna try to move in next door to her to a house that had two stories, no matter. And this was, the market was hot, you know? I that house that I needed to sell would not sell, so I couldn't get out of the one I was in and make the transition. And I now know why we yeah. needed here because this was the only home that would have accommodated her. Right, herself.
2: and I I believe all that too. I mean, yeah, uh, I absolutely believe that
0: one hundred
2: percent. So when she moved in the house with you, who who was in your your home? Who was in your bubble that then began the uh, caretaking part? Or helping with your mom at that
0: time, my older son lived with us. He was saving money to buy a house because you know it's hard for kids nowadays to it buy is. a home. So he's but but he he would help if I needed help moving her. And then my son Wyatt was at college, which in town, and so he would come home and help. Um, he this this young man here has really been my savior. (laughs) He just has, he just was, what do you need, mom? What do you need? What do you need? And, um, I want to get to his part too. So I have an older daughter just real quick. I have four children. I have an older daughter and then three sons. My older daughter was expecting her second child kind of in the middle when we were taking care of mom. Uh And, um, I was just she wanted me to come and I thought I don't know what I'm going to do because my mom wasn't on hospice or or anything at that time but she needed assistance and it got and none of her sisters could you know lift her and things like that and um my mom was very private she didn't want you know a neighbor or anybody else and she she and Wyatt were very close and he came to me and said mom I'll do it which as we all know who have ALS it, there's some very private things that go on in care in caregiving yeah that
2: that we don't talk about i mean yeah. i even when i was keeping a daily blog that i later turned into a book i still left things out. Yeah. Uh, when I'm talking personally with someone, there's someone in my area that was, has a friend recently diagnosed and they asked me to talk to the people. And I said, when they're ready, I'm happy to, now I will talk to them because I want to be real with them. I don't want to hide it, but it, yeah, it's yet something I generally don't talk to the, <laughs> the general public about. So,
0: well, and the way I describe it, as I say, we all do private things, Mm-hmm to keep ourselves clean and to take care of bodily things that we got to do. And all of those things that we don't, don't ever talk about someone with ALS needs assistance with.
2: That's right. Yeah. So why it stepped in and really became your helper. That's kind of like my daughter who was 15 at the time when her dad was really going downhill. She's the one, cause my son was off, uh, in Tuscaloosa in college and, um, so she was there. She was my right hand. She was the one that knew how to operate the Hoyer lift. And she would close her eyes many times. Mom, I'm keeping my eyes closed. Just let me know when I had <laughs> it them. though. But I don't know what I would have done about her. So, so Wyatt, tell me, tell me how grandma coming to your house with ALS, how did that make you feel in the beginning and what made you step up and be the son that uh, helped your mom out?
1: Um. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is kind of fading, so it's okay. Um, we did it. Hi,
2: hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Life After That. Today, we're welcoming Carrie McDonald of Idaho and her son Wyatt. Uh, Carrie lost her mother in March of 2022. Uh, Bobette Rose was 71 when she passed away from amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as ALS and motor neuron disease. Welcome, Carrie and Wyatt. Can we start over? I'm so sorry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Life After That. This is Jan Murray, your host. Today, we're welcoming Carrie McDonald and her son Wyatt from the state of Idaho. Carrie lost her mother, Bobette, 81 years old, back in March of 2022. So, welcome, Carrie and Wyatt. Thank you. Okay, so obviously this season of Life After That is all about amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as ALS, motor neuron disease, Lou Gehrig's disease, the ice bucket challenge disease, so many different names that it's known by. And we are sharing stories of many families across the country and as well as other countries such as Canada and hopefully soon Australia. And Carrie, what can you tell us about your mom and her life before ALS. I mean, what was her life like before she got diagnosed? Can you lead us into that?
0: Yes. Um, My mother was just an incredible person. She was multi-talented. She was a musician. She was an artist. She was a dancer. She was a teacher. Uh, She was the most wonderful mother anybody could ever hope for. And i i am very grateful that, um, I'm her daughter. Uh, I just have one sibling. He, um, he's 18 months older than I am. I'm 55. And, uh, we had one younger sibling that, um, passed away when he was an uh, infant. Um, he would have been a couple of years younger than me. So there were just the three of us, um, or, uh, three children, but I grew up with just one brother and then my mom and my dad. Um, Let's see. What else can I say? My mom was a church organist. Um, She started out as a small child playing the piano. Um, She lived in Scottsbluff, Nebraska, and her piano teacher, I think, moved away. uh, And so the only one left in town to teach at her level was an organist, and she Started taking organ, I believe, at the age of twelve, and then by fourteen she was accompanying in her church with the organ, and she accompanied for our church for sixty years. Wow, accomplishment! Um, in addition, in high school she played the clarinet and the oboe. Um, she grew up in the fifties and was very proud of her time growing up in the fifties. She just told us stories about dragging Maine and going to the sock cops and the drive-ins and, uh, working at the soda fountain as a soda jerk. Um, and she just lived a wonderful childhood. Uh, she is one of seven children. She's the second oldest of seven children, six girls and one boy. Um, And she was very, very proud of her family. She loved her siblings very much and a close-knit family. Um, She, uh, I think it was a little transition for her to come from such a large family to only having um, two, raising two children. She always wanted more children, um, was not able to have more after she lost my brother. Um, let me think if there's other things she spent her career teaching she taught two years before my brother and i were born and then she took off the time to raise us and then she went back to teaching um, after we were grown and she taught for the next um, all, all together i think she taught 27 28 years second and third grade she was a wonderful teacher she was the one that you know all the kids loved and a math specialist she specialized in math taught a lot of math classes in the mornings
2: oh wow the world needs more math specialists yeah
0: Yeah. so I guess from there we'll just let you ask me questions
2: (laughs) okay well I mean it sounds like she was just a wonderful person and had a really wonderful life uh one of the things I always like to ask is what was her health like did she have health issues before ALS or any anything that would have uh you know, signals something else was wrong, or was she like my husband, super healthy, rarely went to the doctor and then boom, ALS hit. What was her situation?
0: Um, you know, she wasn't, she was kind of a sickly child. Um later in life, she just was always very thin and um a little more on the fragile side, but not terribly. She was a cheerleader and very active and and young, but we later found out in her life um, when she was in her fifties, she was diagnosed with a heart condition and it was something with her septum, which she later ended up oh. having an open heart surgery oh. um, and yeah, had some valve issues. So, but it was little things like she, she would pass out easily or she would, um, like when I was a child, she couldn't blow up balloons because that would make her very lightheaded. I remember that. And we always had to have my dad blow up balloons, but, um, but for the most part, she was, she was quite healthy. She, she always had high blood pressure, um, that she managed very well. She always thought that she would die of a stroke (laughs) (laughs) or something related to her heart or or her blood pressure. She's
1: certainly
2: not ALS for sure. Well, um, why skin cancer, why it's going to jump in.
1: She had skin cancer too, but I don't know if that,
2: well, I, I it was
1: induced by something that
0: I will. Yeah. There, when she was a child, she was very fair skinned and she had bad acne as a 16 year old. And they back in the fifties, they gave radiation treatments for acne. And later in her life, she developed skin cancer, which the dermatologist told us was probably attributed to the radiation. So we did, uh, when she was diagnosed with ALS, we did wonder if the radiation she received to her head and face may have had something to do with it.
2: Yeah, there's so many mysteries there with ALS and... You know, there's just uh, I could find lots of people with similarities and then I'll find someone who really had no similarity. I have found that the people that I've known, uh, women specifically, um, tended to be thin and smaller women, uh, not carrying a lot of uh, muscle, meat or even fat. Um, And it's been said for years that those who hold their weight or carry more weight tend to last longer as well. Um, my late husband lost two brothers before he died to ALS. Wow! So obviously it's familial, but they've yet to identify the gene mutation that's within this family, uh, in October, he lost a sister as well. So there were six kids in uh, the Murray family and uh, the baby brother was diagnosed, I believe in his late twenties uh then the older brother was diagnosed a year or so after he was diagnosed and then several years after that my husband was diagnosed and uh then six months after my husband died the sister was diagnosed so all that's left now is my husband's twin brother fraternal twin and one sister out of six kids ALS has wiped everybody else out wow my kids are happy they're adopted they'll tell you that very openly we're glad we're adopted um Cause it's scary, you know, cause nobody knows where it's coming from and what it's doing, but the I, I'm it- just speechless
0: at yeah. that because one was enough yeah. our other,
2: our, our
0: only other exposure was my mom had a friend 20 years ago that had it, but we'd moved away and she just had heard that that's what she, but we really didn't know a lot about ALS. Other so than- it was
2: sporadic in your family. Yes. Um, yeah. No it- one was your mother, was it a limb onset ALS or was it bulbar with the breathing and speaking?
0: We, she was limb onset. And okay. um, I remember when she got diagnosed, the, that was one of the things the neurologist tried to say to make us feel better.
2: Well, tell uh, me about leading up to that. What okay. led to her seeking help to begin with that led to that diagnosis?
0: She does believe, she did believe that maybe she started showing the first symptoms clear back in 2014, 2015. Um, when she moved to my house, she had stairs in her house before, and it was getting very difficult for her to go up and down the stairs, but you know, she attributed to being older in her heart. Um, she was about 74, 72, 74 about that time. Um, and so she wanted a single level home. Um, then I started to notice what, after she moved here, I spent a lot of time with her and I started to notice she was wobbly. And, uh, in fact, I think in 2017, I had texted my brother and I said, mom's starting to wobble and she would catch herself. She mm-hmm. would catch herself. And then, uh, I think she took her first fall in 2018, um, And then she, she, I think she started to fall a lot and she did not tell me we did not live together at that time. Although I saw her at least three, four times a week, um, she was falling on uneven ground. She was a big gardener. She loved to work in her yard and she was falling in the yard and got to the point where she couldn't, she struggled to get up. Um, and then by by 2019, December of 2019, she took a really bad fall. She was right in front of me stepping into her house and she just went straight down. And like you mentioned about earlier, when we talked about your mom, um, my mom also broke her face and cut her face up pretty bad. Not, she didn't need stitches or anything, but bruised it and a little cut. And, uh, what we didn't realize because of her, her face was that she'd actually broke her foot also. And wow we didn't realize till about a week later that she couldn't walk very well on it. And by then it was, you know, probably too late to get her in to do anything about it. So it was just a little bone in her foot. Um, But then she fell again in February of the beginning of 2020 and broke her pelvis. Mm. Yeah. So that, Mm. that was a serious break and um, she had to lie there for, about an hour cuz she couldn't get a hold of me and she crawled her way back into the house and finally got a hold of me. Um so that kind of started it but if you remember by February 2020, you know, we had made an appointment to get in to see the doctor. It took a while and then the pandemic hit. Right. And and then we also live in a very part, you know, a lot of people have heard everyone's moving to Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> and it just it's very hard to get into a doctor without quickly, without it taking some time. And um, we just didn't have enough neurologists in town. And so it took us a while. Um, And I, I finally just started calling and begging, we were gonna have to leave town to find a neurologist. And I just started begging staff members, please, she's elderly, I don't wanna have to drive her. And we finally by October got into a neurologist in town. And then shortly after that, we had the EMG. Um, That's an interesting little story. The day we went in, because our neurologist sent us to a different neurologist to do the EMG. So we'd never met him. Um, The nurse that day was a little curt. She just, it was in the afternoon. She was tired. She just wasn't the friendliest person, which is interesting. But we had the test and... Um, which is painful. Um, yes, it is. And I'll add to that. All while this was going on, my mother got shingles, oh, so she was yeah. already in severe pain from shingles. And she was strong. She she handled pain very well. But so she was suffering from shingles and had to go into that test. And um, we thought we were just there to have the test. You know, they shut off the lights, do the test, they left the room. All of a sudden, the doctor came back in, sat down on the stool and
2: said, you have ALS. Wow. And we were like, what? That wasn't even in your. Well, universe,
0: my, mom had, my mom had questioned because of her friend. We thought maybe she had Parkinson's. That's mm-hmm. the route we were going down. And she just had said one time, you know, my friend. Harriet passed away of ALS. I wonder if this could be ALS, but that was like a month before. Mm -hmm. So afterwards we talked about how we feel that that was maybe a, a God thing, just preparing, softening the blow. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the hard thing about that day was we thought we were just there for a test and then our doctor would get the results and then our doctor would come in like the timing It was, it was like getting hit on the head with a two by four. Uh -uh. And I just remember she said, okay. And then the doctor said, I'm very sorry. This is terminal. And then he said, but I will tell you that you have limb onset, which is probably the better of the two. Um, I don't know if I believe that's true or not. But he said, you probably have three to four years to live. And then she passed away probably 15 months after that.
2: I would say that set is generally the lesser of the two. Bulbar onset is so difficult and takes the breathing and speaking away really quick. And most don't make it past two years, if even that long. Most of the women that I've known that had Bulbar onset barely made it a year. Yeah. Um. I think in your mom's case, she was small in stature and she had multiple falls, which falls are just the enemy. I mean, just the enemy. Um, you can't really recover from those falls. Once you have ALS, your muscles can't recover. Your ligaments don't recover. Your neurons die. I think it just pushes things forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a fall for my husband after diagnosis that um, actually put him in the hospital with a a crushed shoulder ball and they gave him incorrect pain medicine that he had said he was allergic to. He had a bad reaction. He wound up almost dying over the course of a couple of weeks because of that medication error. And um, by the time the two weeks were over, ALS had stolen his ability to walk. He never recovered from the fall he didn't hurt his legs or anything but his legs just wouldn't work anymore yeah. so falls to me are super bad and yeah, your yeah. mom had multiple there and she had shingles her whole body was just under attack wasn't it it was that had to be so hard and and you know she was of that
0: generation that was a little on the prideful side that she just was determined she was going to keep walking she was And I will never forget when she took her last step, she was with the physical therapist at our home and she had a standing walker Mm -hmm. and she kind of got out of her chair and literally walked around the corner. We have, you know, where you can kind of walk a loop around your living room and your front room. And she just said, I can't, I can't, I can't do it anymore. And it was, that was a sad day.
2: Yeah, I'm sure it was. Now, was she still living on her own at that point or were, was no. she in your home?
0: She never went back home. Um, she never went back home after her diagnosis. From that moment on, she, I said, you're staying at my house. And, and it's interesting. It's funny. I found her journal today and I was reading some things I'd forgotten. So she had gotten water in her crawl space and the whole neighborhood did that summer um, and we had it all fixed and some pumps put in and, and around the time she got diagnosed, she just would not, I begged her for that whole year, mom, just move in with me. I have the room, just move in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd rather you move in now before you have to move in. Cause then we can take our time. And, and that was before we knew she was diagnosed. We just knew she wasn't doing well after her fall. Mm-hmm. And, um, that for some reason that time, right after she got diagnosed her, her crawl space filled with water again. So we had to have it all remediated and her house was tore up. And I really think had that not happened, I wouldn't, she would have gone back home again. And I would have just struggled getting her to my house. And she had written in her journal that I read today that that she felt like it was God's way of saying, you can't come back here.
2: <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. That was, you know, yeah. it sounded like a terrible thing, but maybe it was God's way of keeping her safer by being at your house. Yeah.
0: Well, and honestly, it's interesting that you say that because the relief once she moved in just mm-hmm. knowing that she wouldn't fall. Um, And we, we are faithful people and without going into a great bit of detail God's hand was in so much of her diagnosis and the living situation. And I'll just give you one brief little part of it. I was trying to move out of our house because I'm an empty nester. We have a home that's a little bit larger than we need. And I had to sell a different home that I had in order to be able to move all the pieces. I was going to try to move in next door to her to a house that had two stories, no matter. And this was the market was hot, you know. I, that house that I needed to sell would not sell. So I couldn't get out of the one I was in and make the transition. And I now know why we yeah. needed here because this was the only home that would have accommodated her.
2: Right. her and I, I believe all that too. I mean, yeah, uh, I absolutely believe that 100%. I, I do. So when she moved in the house with you, who, who was in your, your home, who was in your bubble that then began the uh, caretaking part? Or helping with your mom at that time, my older
0: son lived with us. He was saving money to buy a house because you know it's hard for kids nowadays to it buy is. a home. So he's but but he he would help if I needed help moving her. And then my son Wyatt was at college, which in town, and so he would come home and help. Um, he, he this this young man here has really been my savior. (laughs) He just has, he just was, what do you need, mom? What do you need? What do you need? And, um, I want to get to his part too. So I have an older daughter just real quick. I have four children. I have an older daughter and then three sons. My older daughter was expecting her second child kind of in the middle when we were taking care of mom. Uh And, um, I was just She wanted me to come, and I thought I don't know what I'm going to do because my mom wasn't on hospice or or anything at that time, but she needed assistance, and it got and none of her sisters could, you know, lift her and things like that, and um, my mom was very private; she didn't want, you know, a neighbor or anybody else, and she she and Wyatt were very close, and he came to me and said, "Mom, I'll do it," which, as we all know, who have ALS, there's some very private things that go on in care in caregiving
2: yeah that that we don't talk about i mean yeah. i even when i was keeping a daily blog that i later turned into a book i still left things out. Yeah. Uh, when I'm talking personally with someone, there's someone in my area that was, has a friend recently diagnosed and they asked me to talk to the people. And I said, when they're ready, I'm happy to, now I will talk to them because I want to be real with them. I don't want to hide it, but it, yeah, it's yeah, something I generally don't talk to the, <laughs> the general public about. So,
0: well, and the way I describe it, as I say, we all do private things, mm-hmm to keep ourselves clean and to take care of bodily things that we got to do. And all of those things that we don't, don't ever talk about someone with ALS needs assistance with.
2: That's right. Yeah. So Wyatt stepped in and really became your helper. That's kind of like my daughter who was 15 at the time when her dad was really going downhill. She's the one, cause my son was off, uh, in Tuscaloosa in college and, um, So she was there. She was my right hand. She was the one that knew how to operate the horrier lift. And she would close her eyes many times. Mom, I'm keeping my eyes closed. Just let me know when I had it open though. But I don't know what I would have done about her. So, so Wyatt, tell me, tell me how grandma coming to your house with ALS, how did that make you feel in the beginning and what made you step up and be the son that uh, helped your mom out?
1: Um. Sorry, my voice is kind of fading so. It's
2: okay.
1: Um I mean, I for a long time, I always had to mow my grandma's lawn. So that's kind of where my relationship with Grandma Bobby started. Uh in the summers and in the fall and she would always pay me a very good wage because grandma <laughs> kind of always threw everybody money. Yeah, grandma's um, do
0: that. <laughs> yeah. On a school teacher budget.
1: But, uh, it was a lot because like my mom said, grandma Bobby was very prideful, not in a bad way, but in the sense that dignity. she, she just, she was like, I'm going to walk as long as I can and I'm going to stay in my own home and I'm going to work on my own garden and I'm going to take care of myself and my dog for as long as I can. And it was, it was really interesting to learn that, you know, she had a disease that, she no longer had control, she no longer had privacy, and she no longer had self-sufficiency, she needed everything done for her. Um,
0: that was hard for her,
1: uh, i sure. It was, and, and I kind of just put myself into her shoes and realized, like, if I lost, you know, everything that I, we all are, you know, underappreciative of, like, like walking or going to the bathroom by yourself or just being able to pull yourself out of bed in the morning um i would hope that someone would be there to come pull me out of bed and take me to the bathroom and t- change the channel for me and get me breakfast lunch and dinner um it was a really good time too because you know although i, I didn't have to do any of the the really intense things that we you know are hard to talk about
2: Yes.
1: It was at a perfect time where I could lift her out of bed into the chair, take her to her chair to the living room, um get everything that she needed. And I I even I even bathed her. Um and it we I, you know I, all you do is just be very respectful, you know, you just it's kind of like being a nurse. Um I'm trying to go into dentistry, so you know it's like caretaking. It's a little different, but um I also just knew that my mom was really the only one that really took care of my grandma. Um like I like we all helped but like my mom she was
2: the number one.
1: Yeah. My mom was her arms and legs, right? And everything else. Um so it was just kind of relieving to me to give my mom a break. Um especially because like as a grandma you no, you only get so many times to go take care of your new daughter, your new um,
0: grandbaby grand, grand and baby. daughter.
1: <laughs> and especially, you know, when you're older, you know, my older sister was like, I, you know, you're, you're the grandma. I, I really want you to be here. Right. It's just like, you know, you don't really think about, oh, grandma, I forget. Grandma needs someone to walk and, and do every single thing for her and that's just not, you know, that's all, was on my mom's mind all the time. So. Right. That's right. I kind of knew it was interesting too, cause it was around the 4th of July and I, like back, back then I was a little bit more, uh, of a, uh, a 19 year old extrovert. Yeah. Um, so it was really hard to stay because a lot of my friends go up to McCall, which is, a, it's a place in Idaho that a lot of everyone goes up there on the 4th of July. And everyone goes and gets together and parties and has a good time. And, um, I of course was like, I had to skip that because that's when the baby was born or around that time. Yeah. And,
0: and And he had a girlfriend who,
1: you know, my, my whole part of the story is a lot, it's really (laughs) funny too, but you know, we talk, you guys talk a lot about, or we all talk a lot about how, you know, there was some divine intervention. And a lot of the time I feel like, uh, I was kind of, pulled away from the people that I was with, thanks to my grandma, because I realized there's more important things than your social life, you know, when, especially when, you know, someone needs you because they, they, they really don't have anything else to give.
2: Well, and you, I mean, I have enormous respect for you. You sound like a very fine young man, because everybody doesn't answer that call, regardless of how much they might be pulled, and you did. And so I think that's wonderful uh, that you were able to step up and and do that. Um, I would like to ask both of you, I ask this of everybody that comes on, but, you know, emotionally, where did you guys go when this first happened, the diagnosis, and as you went through the months as she became ill, how did you deal with your emotions or the things you were feeling, or did you bury them and deal with them after the fact?
1: That's a question
2: it. for both of you Well,
1: first. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest as a, as the grandson and the teenager, I'm, you know, I wasn't really, I didn't really think about it that hard. You know, you get that call and you're like, Oh, that's terrible. Like grandma. Yeah. And then, you know, I kind of learned how, big of a deal it was over time seeing how it affected my mom how it affected my grandma seeing grandma move in um
0: and then taking care of that
1: that's yeah and that's just a part of maturing and growing up and
2: (laughs) uh,
1: I'm sure a lot of other people would feel similar but yeah once you once you get more understanding of the situation it it's just odd because I don't know. You just don't, you don't think about the end of your life until you're there. And, you know, coming from someone that, you know, I, I hopefully have many years to come, but it's, it really teaches you how much you need to be grateful for how many aspects of life and life in general that you should be grateful for. And emotionally it's it, once you understand, it's really difficult.
2: It does make, and a disease like ALS does make you kind of re-examine things. It really does because you watch things kind of in slow motion and they're devastating. And, uh, I know it changed a lot about the way I think and the way I feel and the way I approach things. And I've already, I've buried four children Mm. plus my husband and my parents, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, Each thing has changed me, but I have to tell you, the whole ALS thing did quite a number on me emotionally. Um, I I believe I have PTSD. You'll hear a lot of uh, widows or caretakers of uh, those with ALS that'll say, well, I feel like I have PTSD. I know I do. Uh, I can see a a motorized wheelchair, somebody else in it, and I'm immediately back to to those days, or if I hear somebody choking or coughing in a restaurant, I'm immediately in choke mode. Oh no. Um, and it affects me. So what about what about you guys, Carrie? What about you? Your emotions and what do you think?
0: Just to add on to what as his mother, I did see a tremendous maturity in him. And it was also my mother had a lot of wisdom and and she was so good about sharing it in such a tender way. She would never get in your way of what you were planning or whatever, but she would just find a way to add her little gentle advice. And I really saw maturity in him. And um, like he said, just his focus on, on his education and things and he's done very well. So that has been a little silver lining to that for us. Um, For me, I, I think, I just kind of went into duty mode. Um, I remember early on, my mother just kept saying I'm such a burden." because my mother was the one that never sat down until everybody else did. She just was go, go, go. (laughs) And she just kept saying, I'm such a burden. I'm da, da, da. And I finally said, okay, no more. You cannot say that anymore. We're not, no more. And I was kind of firm with her. And I said, if we're not, having fun, then we are not doing this right. We are going to laugh our way to the very bitter end. And we did. And so, you know, I just, I I am someone who's um, optimistic and I do try to look for the, the bright things in life because like many people, we haven't had an easy life for us. It's just been one thing after another. Um, And, uh, we just decided we made it a big sign early on and we each wrote our favorite quotes on it, including my brother. And we just said, we're going to do this right. And one of the things my mother wanted on there was shut up and listen, (laughs) (laughs) which I loved because, you know, she was saying, be quiet and listen to God and listen to those around you who love you. And so after that moment, um, it was a joy. It was an honor. I was tired and a lot of my things didn't get done, but it it was a joy to take care of her. And I always say, look for the silver lining. One of the silver linings is you can prepare. You can take those videos and photos and get all the stories and make recordings. And you do get a little bit of time to prepare that way. Um,
2: when you say that, let me interject real quick. Did she ever lose her voice or were you able to, was she able to keep her voice the whole time?
0: Uh, she kept her voice the whole time until maybe the last month. And then it was very hard for her to communicate. That's great.
1: um, It was like a workout for her at that point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We have a funny video of her one time when she was starting to lose her voice and she, she was a little punchy from her nighttime meds and she was t- talking. One of the things I haven't said yet was my brother was stuck in Australia this whole time. He, oh, he wow. works in Australia and they couldn't leave the country. Well, they could leave, but then they couldn't get back. And that's oh, where his yeah. place of that's employment was. Yeah. So all this time we had to juggle too. When could he come home to see his, you know, mother and all of that thing. So during the pandemic, that was very hard. So we spent a lot of time FaceTiming with my brother. And one night she just was like, look, I can't scream. And she was trying to scream. Bloody murder and nothing would come out and you oh. would just laugh. But um, yeah, back to also emotionally, it has affected me definitely. Um, for one, raising three uh, daughter who rides horses and three sons, um, I already had PTSD. <laughs> <from> <laughs> I'm the, sure. <laughs> I still tell them when they call me, they have to say, Mom, everything's okay. And then tell me what they're going to tell wrong? me.
1: i'm like i just need to see if you're cooking dinners or not that's wrong
0: um but but yeah it definitely um you definitely have dreams or there's a lot of trauma that um it is traumatic it's traumatic watching someone die and it does affect you and it affects everything about you.
2: Yeah, it does. It does. hard. Very hard. So, so what we're going to do is we'll end this episode and I want to invite everyone to come back for the next episode to hear the other part of Carrie and Wyatt's story about Bobette or Grandma Bobby uh, in our next episode. I want to thank you guys for being here and uh, we'll see everyone next time on Life After That.